Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Our podcast episode today is supported by Inner Health. And just a disclaimer that the podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we do advise that you exercise judgment before deciding to use any of the information provided. So February is or was Gut Health Month and, you know, one of the most popular topics in the world of gut health is probiotics. So today we're joined by dietitian Sandra McHale to dive into the latest science on probiotics and in particular what their potential role is in managing IBS. And we'll also just touch on some of the effects of probiotics outside of the gut, including mental well-being and skin health. Now, Sandra presented at our recent Gut Health Month Symposium. So if you missed that, I'd really highly recommend going back and having a look at it. And we'll add a link in the show notes so you can get to it easily. Sandra McHale is an internationally known accredited practicing dietitian, founder and director of Nutrition A to Z by Sandra McHale. She has a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics, a Master of Advanced Studies in Nutrition and Health, and is a member of Dietitians Australia. She also holds a sports nutrition diploma by the International Olympic Committee. And with experience spanning over a decade, Sandra's main areas of specialty are digestive disease, sports nutrition, eating disorders, and corporate health, working with a number of brands. Sandra's passion for and work in gut health has created a movement of normalizing poo talk, or as her motto goes, making poo talk salon chic, shedding light on topics that you might find yourself secretly Googling about. Her upcoming book, The Gut Chronicles, will be launching worldwide on the 12th of May. So welcome back to our Dietitian Connection podcast, Sandra. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jane, for having me again. So we spoke to you about a year ago and you told us about the fact that you've worked across continents and the fact that your father was a gastroenterologist. So poo talk was just a normal part of family dinners, much to the delight of all your visitors. I was just going to say, you know, the whole term of rectal bleeding and sort of colonoscopies was just normal dinner chit chat. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Um, so, so you've you've got this private practice, as I was saying, now a practice that you have, and you see a number of um, gut health type issues. What are the most common ones that you see with your clients, and and how do you normally approach them? 
Right. So the most common gut conditions that we see at the practice are IBS, that's irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease. So that's either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. We also see quite a lot of patients with SIBO. And I know I've spoken about SIBO at the Gut Health Symposium. So I highly encourage people to sort of go back to that, that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um, and food sensitivities as well. So these tend to be the most common ones that we see. And you've talked, you spoke briefly last time um, about the fact that you sort of have a holistic approach to managing these. It's not just diet. Absolutely. So, regardless of why people come and see us at the practice, our approach is based on, let's say, I call it the four pillar approach. And this is where we really look at nutrition, mind, movement, and sleep. So, I call these the sort of essential well being pillars where, when they're in synchrony, this is where we feel our best. So, this Four pillar approach is a structured way to ensure that our patients have access to the right support network under every pillar. And obviously nutrition is at the core of what we do as dietitians. Um, when it comes to nutrition, so the way that we support a lot of our clients, um, specifically in gut health, is working with their reality. So it's managing their symptoms, um, whether it's through the FODMAP process, um, adjusting fiber intake, looking at plant diversity, um, and again, education is at the core of what we do. So especially when it comes to gut health, we have to educate them on the topic of biotics. So this is where we talk about your probiotics, your prebiotics and postbiotics. So there's a whole range of things that we do. But as I said, nutrition is at the core of what we do. What we do encourage our clients to really think about these four pillars. And just out of interest, when you're addressing the other pillars, do you have people within your practice or do you just have relationships with other healthcare professionals that can manage those, the sleep, the mindfulness? So we do we do have both. So I actually work with one of my good friends who started the practice. So she's a, um, a medical massage therapist and a movement therapist as well. So we do offer, offer things like yoga, shiatsu, and there's a specific type of stress management technique here in Switzerland called autogenic training. But I have built a relationship, so I've handpicked the professionals that we worked with, whether it's psychologists and psychiatrists, um, GPs, personal trainers, um, and sleep consultants as well. Right. So if we do focus now on, on IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, can you give us your definition of what IBS is? Because I think whilst dietitians might have something in mind, others may mm-hmm. come up with a whole variety of sort of definitions Absolutely. of what it is mm-hmm. and, and why it's important to have an actual diagnosis of IBS. So this is a bit of an IBS uh, one-on-one rundown. We do <laughs> know you. that it's actually an extremely common gut disorder of the gut-brain interaction. Now, I'm not sure if people are aware, but there was a recent name change. So they used to be called functional gut disorders. but And there, this term is still used. But as a dietitian working in this space, I do welcome the name change purely because function the term functional comes with a bit of stigma so a lot of people feel that it's a diagnostic label that implies that this condition is less serious or less legitimate than an organic disease but we do know again i'm an ibs sufferer myself and it can be debilitating it can definitely affect your quality of life so when it comes to ibs um the most common symptoms is recurrent abdominal pain, as we all know, with altered bowel movement. So it can be diarrhea, constipation, or a mix of both in the absence of organic disease. So anatomically, nothing is wrong. Um, in terms of the causes, we cannot pinpoint to one single cause. We do know that it's multifactorial. So there is a glitch in how the gut and the brain are communicating. 
Um, we also do know that there could be an element of dysbiosis. And I go, again, dysbiosis is this loosely thrown mm. out term. Um, again, in layman terms, people might think it's this imbalance of good versus bad bacteria, but actually it just refers to things like poor microbial diversity or even a, a reduction in the abundance of good bacterial species. Um, other causes can include things like stress and anxiety are known triggers, uh, sensitivity to FODMAPs or intolerance of these fermentable sugars, but even infection after, you know, picking up a tummy bug, we do see something called post-infectious IBS that tends to develop after uh, catching a, a gut bug per se. So and our- is that a transient thing? Sorry, the post-infection IBS, like does that sort of improve over time or do people find that that so, is yeah. a long-lasting effect? Again, maybe if I had to use my case as an example, I would say it is a long-lasting effect, but I do notice um, it to be way more manageable than the other causes. Wow. At the end of the day, I mean, again, I've, I've, I got diagnosed 12 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago with IBS, and it all started off because of two big things. A, I had a burnout at 25, and two, I picked up a tummy bug, and I was put on these courses of antibiotics which I probably shouldn't have taken. I know I did consult my dad, so he was not very happy with that, (laughs) but I wasn't the same since. And this is the same story that you see with so many patients um, who get the diagnosis of IBS. And this takes us to this, you know, how do we diagnose it? So obviously it starts off with this process of elimination. We need to rule out specific gut conditions for us like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. But we do have um, strict criteria. So we do know that the Rome criteria, and this is where your specialist or GP can come down to that conclusion of, yep, this is irritable bowel syndrome. Not to, again, not to sort of downgrade that it's nothing, because again, another term, let's say the four famous words that a lot of our clients are, I like to call them clients, Mm -hmm. practice and not patients, but everyone's heard these four famous words of it's all in your head. And again, it, it sort of, that that's the stigma that's associated with IBS. So this is why I would say, look, do not self-diagnose. Don't read Google. Go see a specialist who sees IBS very, very frequently. So whether it's a GP specialized in irritable bowel syndrome or a gastroenterologist that can help come to that conclusion. Because what's really important is that you need to find the right management approach and get the right care. So the the diagnosis is really a combination of exclusion of other pathology as well as meeting those Rome criteria. Exactly. So in the, actually in the gut health symposium that we just had, I did mention what a typical IBS workup looks like. So um, a lot of our listeners can have a look there. Um, But also, you know, depending on what the blood work suggests, then we'd say, right, are other interventions warranted? So it could be an ultrasound, it could be an endoscopy. So you have to go through all that process before coming to that diagnosis of IBS. And I guess a lot of those results of those tests may be consequences of IBS and so need to be treated anyway. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned the gut-brain axis and and its um, role in IBS. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, explain that a bit more? So the gut-brain axis, think of it as a bi-directional communication pathway between our brains and our gut. Um, gut, sorry, we do have one brain and one gut. Um, so what I would always explain you know, to my clients, think of, think of your brain and your gut as being physically connected by this, let's say, long tube called the vagus nerve. Um, and I want you to think of these two as having this unlimited call package where they're constantly communicating via this channel. Now, 
One way in which this communication sort of takes place is by chemicals or neurotransmitters that are produced by our gut microbes or bacteria that travel through this vagus nerve back to our brain, um, which can, for example, influence our mood. But also through the same channel, your brain can send signals directly from, let's say, the brain down to your gut. Now, in IBS, this is where that glitch happens. And it's in this gut signaling. So how this, you know, and then that gut brain um, access um, channel. So when there is a, this gut signaling is impaired, it can cause something called visceral hypersensitivity, meaning our threshold for pain and our gut is lower than normal. So the slightest bloat or tummy pain can send these massive alarm signals causing pain. And let's say, and that can backfire causing additional stress. So you're stuck in this vicious loop. And this altered signaling can also cause issues with gut motility. And this is why we actually see, let's say, the extremes with, you know, some patients would have um, very strong, let's say, gut contractions and rapid gut um, motility causing diarrhea. And others have the other extreme where they do get that constipation. So this is basically how the gut-brain act is affected in a nutshell when it comes to IBS. So it's, it's not easy. And we're still scratching the surface, really trying to understand um this this glitch per se yeah so the what you're saying is people uh, people without IBS may still have those symptoms but because their brain access is working a bit better or a bit smoothly it doesn't amplify those symptoms into something exactly. that's really intolerable um absolutely yeah, yeah. it's that's... really interesting and this is why I would say again going back to that four pillar approach the mind pillar is extremely important and I think I also mentioned that multiple times that when you're dealing with patients with IBS, it's really important. There's enough research to support that to start addressing the mind pillar early on. And there is new, like there's a ton of things that your clients can do, whether it's, um, again, referring them to the right therapist. So it could be CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, but there's also gut directed hypnotherapy. And there is like there are apps that people can access where, again, if it's a financial thing or they cannot get the referral or if there's a massive waiting list, which is generally the case, um, there are quite a few things out there that they can already do just to target that that mind pillar. Yeah, with very minimal risk involved. So, exactly. Um, so if we think then about probiotics um, in the space of IBS, are there sort of basics that dietitians really should know when they're thinking about probiotics or talking to their clients about probiotics? Look, I think the list, I would say the list is extensive, but I'll try to sort of yeah. recap the top things. It's a longer that we need podcast than this. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, when it comes to probiotics, it is no one size fits all approach. Um, I think a lot of us are tempted to use probiotic supplementation, um, you know, with, with numerous conditions, et cetera, and tends to be kind of, I'm not going to say it's the easy way in terms of management, but by saying that though, there are a ton of studies out there that's, that highlight using the right strain of probiotic can be safe and effective as part of treating multiple gut conditions. Now, we do know that, I mean, what we also know is that not everyone is going to benefit from a probiotic supplement. But who are the people that are going to benefit? I would say there's enough evidence to support the use of probiotic supplementation in, let's say, symptoms related to constipation, um, diarrhea from antibiotic use, diarrhea from, let's say, an infection, irritable bowel syndrome, which we're going to talk about in a second, and ulcerative colitis. So these are the conditions that we do know 
the science is there to support it. But again, we are going to go back to strain specificity. So it is the strain of bacteria or yeast that is most important. And it, it is going to determine if your product is going to work or not. And the, is, sorry, I was going to say, is there a dosage? Exactly. So I was going to say, so the other thing is the dosage. Generally, we recommend at least taking 500 million CFUs. And what CFUs stand for is the amount of viable bacteria per dose or per sample. So 500 million is the lowest amount researched for benefits. Um, but obviously, the dose can vary depending on the, the, the health condition that you're trying to address um, and the strain as well. Um, the other important thing is that we really need to make sure that the product that you're using is certified and has been researched. So, for example, in Australia, that we need to be, you know, we need to be mindful that it's been certified by the TGA, so that's Therapeutic Goods Administration, um, and has enough clinical research behind it. Again, going back to the type of strain used, using it for the right condition. So, a lot of the times, I even, you know, tell my clients because again, you can get probiotics just over the counter. Anyone can buy a probiotic. So, what's really important is just say. Right. Why am I, you know, what is the end game? What am I trying to use this probiotic supplement for? What am I trying to achieve here? So clinical evidence is extremely important. Um, and then we look at the duration. So when we look at the science, we do know that a lot of the studies have gone anywhere between four to 12 weeks of probiotic supplementation. So we do advise, again, not going over 12 weeks, but... Again, unless it's, you know, indicated otherwise. So this is why I would say go back to your specialist, go back to your gastroenterologist, go back to your dietitians when in doubt. Your dietitian will check in on you after four weeks of supplementation just to make sure that it is working. Um, we are seeing, though, some studies that are going well and over beyond the 12-week mark as well. Yeah, and I guess, as you say, the, the um, research on all of this area, gut-brain access, probiotics, gut microbiota, is still in its infancy. So we are going to see exactly. some modifications to our recommendations as we learn more about them. So if you have a client that presents to you, um, an IBS client, and how do you sort of navigate um, probiotic usage with them? Look, as I said, education is at the core of what we do. And as dietitians, we just need to actually educate them around this whole topic of biotics because it can be a rabbit hole of misinformation. And actually, there were so many times I've had to take clients off probiotics because either they were overusing them or they were using the wrong strain mm. or their gut symptoms were just not improving and they were becoming worse. So this is where I would say the role of dietitians is extremely important when it comes to education and just helping them navigate this very confusing world of probiotics. Because again, you know, pe people people can fall for, 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 for certain products that are probably not the right ones for them. And I guess it's exactly the same with when they present with dietary restrictions that have been self-imposed because exactly. they've read that a particular food group is going to trigger symptoms. So they cut those out. And again, yeah. dietitians have a crucial role in improving their diets. And just as well, dietitians need to be really competent in probiotic discussions. I was going to say, and this is why I highly encourage dietitians working in this space to sort of keep up their CPDs, especially when it because of how quickly the research is evolving, mm. especially when it comes to all the different strains that are being used um, in managing IBS. So can you give us a bit of a, again, 101 part B um, on probiotics? <laughs> um, the latest science in terms of, you know, what strains um, should dietitians look for if they've got clients with IBS that might that have research to support their use? 
All right. So when we're looking at the studies out there, research shows that the best probiotic supplements for IBS will contain strains like NCFM, so that's Lactobacillus acidophilus. We've got HNO19. We've got 299V. Again, I'm all I'm I'm just mentioning these strains, but um, if we had to mention, let's say, if you just had to highlight each strain, so for example, Lactobacillus NCFM. We do know that the research dose to actually exert a benefit is around 10 billion CFUs. And this is actually a type of probiotic used um, in IBS because of its analgesic effects. So what the science is uncovering is that this specific probiotic can actually increase the, uh, let's say, expression or the production of analgesic receptors on along our intestinal lining. So that would be one that's extremely popular and actually very, very well-researched probiotic. The other one is Bifidobacterium lactis HNO19. Now, when we're looking at the dose here, the minimum research dose was 1 billion CFUs. And what this specific probiotic does is it improves intestinal transit time and gut motility. The third one, uh, I know they're all mouthful, so I had to say they are. They don't the tongue, do they? <laughs> Uh, the other one is 299V, so that's a lactobacillus um, strain, so lactobacillus punctarum 299V. Um, and the most researched dose is actually 20 billion CFUs. And this specific probiotic is known to reduce gas and bloating and pain and actually achieve more consistent bowel movements. So again, this goes back to, you know, understanding what are you trying to achieve as a dietitian when you want to prescribe a probiotic supplement when it comes to dealing with your IBS patients. So, you know, in, 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 in general, these probiotic strains that have been researched in IBS have been proven to be beneficial in managing the symptoms. So are we trying to improve stool consistency? Are we trying to improve um, gut motility um, or pain management? Yeah. So if you had a patient with IBS that was, say, um, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terminology, constipation <laughs> dominant, um, yeah. is there yeah. a particular one of these that you would go for? So I would basically go for perhaps the, um, so HNO19. So it can even be a, a, a I'm going to say a strain specific, but like a multi-strain. So a combination of these different yes, strains. Right. And there you can find them on the market. So I would probably go for the 299V and HNO19 together. So there are concoctions, let's say out there yeah. that combine these specific strains to achieve symptom control. And as far as my understanding goes for labeling of, um, reputable probiotics um, that are put out there, they will actually have to specify on the label what exactly. the research has been shown that they are yep. used for. So um, exactly. people should be able to also look at the labels um, and be informed there. So um, for dietitians who are working with IBS clients, and I guess we've touched on this a bit, what are your yeah. sort of tips for prescribing probiotics? Where do probiotics come in your consult? So for these specific subgroup of patients, um, I would say, look, we do know that as dietitians, we have a food first policy, but there are certain circumstances where following, let's say, a strict FODMAP diet to achieve symptom control is actually not possible nor realistic. So I would say these would be the subgroup of patients where they are good candidates to start probiotic therapy early on to manage gut symptoms. So rather than wait later on, you can even just start early to prescribe a strain-specific probiotic. 
The other thing that you need to be mindful of is a lot of probiotics can have added um, FODMAPs or added fermentable sugars oh, in them wow. because they do act as prebiotics to feed your gut microbes. But again, in these specific group of people, we do know that FODMAPs can cause or can trigger your symptoms and just make you feel worse. So I would say just be mindful of probiotics that do contain things like FOS, GOS, and inulin. So try to avoid these. And there are quite a few on the market that are free from these, let's say, fermentable sugars. The other thing that I extremely, you know, I would highlight is make sure you review your supplementation protocol after four weeks, check in with your clients, see if they're actually achieving symptom control or not. Not, you know, it's not open-ended basically. So at the four week mark from when you've started supplementation, just check in and just see how they're going. Where are other areas that research is emerging now or showing us that probiotics um, could be beneficial? So look, I'm going to say I'm probably not the expert here purely because, you know, my heart lies in gut health, but (laughs) we do know um, or what we're starting to see is, again, this whole field of mental health, um, there's no conclusive evidence yet, but we are looking at the possibility of using probiotics as part of managing conditions like um, de- depressive disorders, things like anxiety, or even you're going to start looking at research in terms of um, Alzheimer's disease and looking at using probiotics to slow down the progression of Alzheimer's. The Another thing that we're also starting to see is using um, probiotics for certain skin conditions and different types of dermatitis um, or even eczema um, and acne. Again, that's another interesting field. So there are specific strains there that may help, um, again, ease or help manage these gut conditions via the gut-skin axis. Um, there are specific strains looking at probiotics and allergy management or even prevention of certain allergies as well. I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to pick my brain. What else do we have? Of course, with immunity, I mean, with the rise of, I mean, after after going through a whole pandemic, um, we are trying to look at, you know, can we use probiotic, um, let's say different probiotic strains in, in strengthening our immune system or let's say recovering. Actually, the other thing I was just pondering to myself is when you talked about um, getting IBS post-infection, I wonder whether long COVID will be associated with the rise in incidence of IBS you do. Um, or even and, long and COVID. Again, I was just going to say, just looking at a specific group of patients, again, I because we don't have enough evidence there, I could be anecdotal, but I do have a handful of my long COVID patients that have been diagnosed with post-infectious IBS purely because their GI, you know, their gastrointestinal system was hit. Yeah. Um, and also looking at the different strains of COVID at the moment, because we do know like these viruses are constantly changing. So some strains are no longer, again, purely respiratory in terms of their symptoms that, again, I've had quite a few clients tell me, look, their third, let's say, bout of COVID was purely gut related. So they've had diarrhea, stomach pain and, and loss of appetite. So this is where I would say, look, absolutely watch the space. If you are working in the field of gut health, um, and again, you know, working in a pandemic as well, you just need to keep up to date with the research. Yeah. And so if we just pull our view back a little bit from being more specifically about probiotic supplements, can our, our diet, our food sources contribute probiotics as well? We're dietitians, so we do have this whole food first policy. And absolutely, yes. But, I mean, I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, the the most ancient food sources of probiotics are things like cheese and, and yogurts. But what we do know, again, because of all this hype around the, you know, the fermented foods field, um, I would say in terms of the evidence and looking at 
um, what are the you know most well-researched food sources of probiotics that have good science behind them? It will be things like kefir, which is fermented milk. It is an acquired taste. I'm going to say I'm not <laughs> a big fan of kefir. Um, and things like natural, natural yogurt. Um, so these are things that I would highly encourage people to, to sort of include as part of their diet. We also have things like, you know, your sauerkraut and, and kimchi, and this is fermented cabbage. And when it comes to food sources of probiotics, the, you know, again, when we're looking at fermented foods and IBS, I would say hold off until you get your gut symptoms under control before introducing fermented foods, just because, you know, you have an element of bloating and yeah. gas um, associated with introducing these foods. But it really comes down to the frequency. I don't, you don't have to actually have, you don't have to consume a lot. So I would say if you do want to include food sources of probiotics, start off with things like, you know, 150 to 100 mils of kefir every other day. Um, so it's even less than a glass. It can be a tablespoon of fermented cabbage or let's say sauerkraut or kimchi every day. So it's not large amounts, but just exposing your gut to be able to tolerate these foods more frequently. So I would say kefir and yogurts are things that are highly researched and have good evidence to support them as really good sources of probiotics. Um, but then you've got, I'm not going to call them like the hipster sources of probiotics, <laughs> but you've got things like kombucha. As Again, if you do enjoy kombucha, absolutely, you know, there, there's no harm in including it, but not all kombucha is created equal either. So there is an element of, hold on, do you actually have viable mm. um, probiotics in them, right? Because of all the handling and some of them are not even refrigerated. So we do, so there's a lot of red flags that tell us, you know, marketing here plays a huge role um for the science yeah so so there are potentially there are food choices that you can make to support um probiotics uh in your diet um and they may be alongside taking a probiotic supplement um exactly. as, you, as you get symptoms under control and the other thing i really wanted to mention is think of probiotic supplementation as like planting the seeds so what we're trying to do is we're trying to replant the seeds just to make sure that we have these good microbial species thriving but what about their food? What about their nourishment? And this is where this whole concept of plant diversity comes in. So we really need to make sure that we're nourishing our gut microbes or nourishing our inner ecosystem alongside probiotic supplementation, just to make sure that we're actually, you know, they're well-fed. Um, and the other thing that we want to try to do is we want to try to promote the production of postbiotics per se. And I know this is a whole concept, you know, a whole topic for another, for another podcast discussion, but what we do know or we're trying to see is the byproducts of these, let's say, probiotics or our healthy microbes fermenting fiber, we start producing these compounds called short-chain fatty acids. And these are anti-inflammatory beneficial compounds, or again, the research is thriving. So what we do what we do want is we want to support the production of these compounds. So this is where plant diversity comes in. Yeah. So once you've Take, taking probiotics, you're on that journey, you're, you know, replenishing your good bacteria, for want of a better word, um, yeah. then you do need to look at your diet and supporting that good bacteria exactly. ongoing. And that's where your plant diversity, probiotics, all those sorts of things come into play. Absolutely, yeah. Correct. So we've done a nice um, probiotics 101 here but uh, if we have to give the the summary at the end of the lecture um that you used to get at university what would your sort of really key take-home messages be for for dietitians who are prescribing or working with clients and using probiotics so as a quick recap remember what are you trying to achieve 
you know, what are you trying to address? And this is where the strain comes in. So remember that the strain of your microbe, the strain of bacteria is going to determine if your product is going to work or not. The other thing is look at dosage. So we know that the minimal dosage will be 500, uh, 500 million CFUs. Um, so this is one thing just to kind of keep in mind. The other thing is check in with your clients and patients, just check in after four weeks and see whether supplementation is working. And then remember to encourage, you know, food, bring in the nourishment. How are we going to nourish these prebiotics? And this is where plant diversity comes in. Well, that's a really helpful overview, Santa. I really appreciate your time. And as I said, we had a fantastic feedback on the Gut Health Symposium um, that we ran a couple of weeks ago. So that recording's available on the Dietitian Connection website. And as I said, we'll put a link in the show notes, but I highly recommend you go back and view that. Anyone who's listened to Sandra today, you can see a couple of case studies um, from her practice. So thanks so much for your time today, Sandra, and thank you to Inner Health for supporting this podcast episode. Thank you very much for having me, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.